our Old Testament reading is a responsive reading this morning from Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. We'll comment more about this passage in our message this morning. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, but the produce of the and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the tears. He makes me tread on my high places. Our New Testament reading comes from John chapter 9 as we continue our study in the gospel according to John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have been paying attention to the call to worship, to the first hymn, to the second hymn, to the scripture reading, from Habakkuk, a scripture reading from John chapter 9. If you've looked ahead and you've seen the title of the message, then seen the hymn at the end of the message, you know that this message is about people and persons in very, very, very difficult and hard times. We come to that subject because that's exactly what we see in John 
9, 1 through 12. But before we look at this passage and see a man who came through a lifetime of hard times and see a God who was sovereign and Lord that even gave him those hard times. That's a difficult passage. It's a difficult thing to consider. But this passage, wow, what a blessing. Now, I can't teach that this morning. Not like it should be taught. No man behind this desk could. And so, as we do every Sunday, we're going to stop, but especially today, and ask the Father to teach us and set this message deep within each of our minds and deep within our hearts because we will all be at this place sometime in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as your priest, a congregation of priests. Week after week, we come and we bring people before you, Father, people for whom we pray, and we set them before you and ask your blessings on them. And in these years and months, We've seen you answer those prayers in wonderful ways. And so this morning, once again, we lay Phil Halley before you. Father, thank you for delivering him from those seizures this week. We pray that you would bring, continue to bring healing, restore movement to his limbs. Thank you for his laughter. Thank you for the joy that we see in his eyes. Father, bless Sally as she cares for him. Father, bless David Mattingly. We pray that in these tests that he's taking, that the doctors will discern what is wrong and a remedy will be found. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give him many years yet. And we pray, our Father, that he would know your presence. Bless Eileen Wood. Thank you for what you're doing there. And we pray as she goes to Cleveland Clinic again that the doctors will find what it is and be able to bring relief. We pray for Bobby Harris that you will bring healing from this cancer. Comfort Jana and Jeannie and their families. We pray for Becky Guy's white father. We pray that, Father, she looks ahead. We pray that she'll be looking ahead to what you've prepared for with joy. We ask that you'd bring our junior high and senior high home safely today. Father, bless the fall fest on Wednesday evening with the youth and children and parents, grandparents. 
And oh, Father, we look forward to next Sunday. We love telling the story of Christ Covenant Reformed Church and what you've done here. Father, we just have to laugh at your goodness, at the wonder of it all and what you've done. And so as we come together, we pray that, Father, you would be in our midst and bring about a wonderful celebration next Sunday morning. Fill that worship, Father. Fill that worship with your presence, with your joy. Father, bless the time that we have at our party. You've called, you called your people to feasts. Now, this is a feast. And we pray that we shall go from that worship to the feast as people who have seen the greatness of your goodness. Now, as we come to this passage, we pray, Father, you would teach us. John Sartell can't do this. We ask that you would make yourself known. Pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. And when we leave here in a few minutes, may we know that you have spoken. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Oh, change us, Father. Change us. Maybe some of us for the first time. Amen. Why this malady for so long, Lord? Why? Jesus is in Jerusalem for the great harvest feast of tabernacles. We have been with him in that feast through chapter 7 and 8. And in chapter 8, once more, he angered the Pharisees by claiming to be the light of the world, by claiming to be the God from eternity. They had made an attempt to stone him. That was the penalty for blaspheming. And these confrontations with the Pharisees continue into chapter 9. We'll only look at the first part of chapter 9. The story begins when Jesus with his disciples encounters a blind man begging. The blind man was in the temple area. Why? For that's where the crowds would be. The great crowds, hundreds of thousands of people would gather at the temple. That would be the center most gathering place during the feast. His blindness made him dependent on the generosity of others. This was the ideal place for him to be as he sought alms. So what happens in this scene? First, the disciples proceed to make an assumption that was not accurate in this case. Look at verse 1. As Jesus passed by, saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
Now, before we get after the disciples about this, we've all done that. It's been in our DNA for thousands of years. We assume that someone's terrible predicament was a result of their transgressions. You've done it, and I've done it. Remember when calamity descended on Job's house? He lost his wealth. He lost his children. Then he lost his health. And three friends showed up to counsel him. Now, with friends like this, you don't need enemies. They show up and say, all right, Job, things like this just don't happen to good people. So what sin did you commit to bring down this judgment on your head? You know, when you're being put through the ringer, and this week as I wrote that, I thought, most people in the congregation, you that are older, you know what a ringer is, but I was, Terry and I were talking about this coming in this morning. Our children don't know what a ringer is. The ringer in the 1930s and 40s and 50s was attached to the tub of a washing machine. Remember that? The ringer was made up of two mechanized roller bars and clothes were washed and soaked in the tub and then they were taken out of the tub and they were run through between the roller bars, run through. Now, some of you are nodding your head. I know that. I remember that. The clothes were run through it. And the ringer squeezed the water from the clothes. Today, our washer tubs spin at high speeds to throw off the water. So, from the ringer and watching the ringer, a phrase developed. When you go through the ringer, when you are being squeezed hard, when the life is being squeezed out of you in some predicament, well, we discover in the book of Job that those bad events in Job's life were not a direct result of his sin. His three friends were absolutely wrong. But we can't condemn the disciples for us asking this because sometimes our troubles are directly related to our sins. When David and Bathsheba committed adultery, she became pregnant. David continued to conspire in his sin and her husband was killed in battle because of a command that David made as king. David married Bathsheba and he thought all is well. But God brought down a hard discipline on David's house. And he brought down a hard discipline on David and Bathsheba. Part of that discipline was the taking of a child's life. Now, that's David and Bathsheba. Remember Jonah? How did Jonah end up in the stomach of that great fish? 
He was running in the opposite direction that God told him to go. He would not go to Nineveh, that cursed pagan city. And he ran the opposite direction, even though God had told him to go to Nineveh. He disciplined David. He disciplined Jonah. We're warned in Scripture that our Father will hold us accountable for our sins. They're forgiven in Christ, but he will still discipline us. As a good parent, that's where we as parents got that. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at your scripture sheet, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 and verse 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we can end up in some very bad places and conditions because of our sins as God disciplines us. But in this case, in John 9, the man blind from birth, this awful physical malady was not a result of his sins or his parents' sins. The disciples proceed to make an assumption that was not accurate in this case. Secondly, we see Jesus' shocking answer for the reason for this man's Malady. Now, if you've been asleep up to now, or your mind's been somewhere else, just stop right now and focus. You need to see this. It is amazing. Jesus answered, verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know what we're apt to say when bad things happen and we don't understand why? I say this. I've said it to you. I've probably said it to most of you individually. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world of weeds and illness and pain and violent storms. So this man, if we lived in a perfect world that was not fallen, this man would not have been born blind. But Jesus did not say that. He could have. He could have said, disciples, we just live in a fallen world. But he didn't shrug it off and say that. Jesus says, look at it. God had a purpose in this man's blindness. This man was born blind so that the works of God Almighty could be displayed in him. Whoa. In our world today, what's the first thing? What is the very first thing you hear if a plane crashes tomorrow and all the people on that plane are killed? What's the first thing you're going to hear? News media will find some preacher, somebody that will talk about God and that person will say and you know it that person will say God had nothing to do with this go find that in scripture 
You want to see unbelief? You want to see rank unbelief? You want to see people shaking their fist in the face of God? That's it. God is so powerless. He's not omnipotent. He's not the ruler. He's not sovereign. And he couldn't have had anything to do with this bad stuff. Now we immediately jump ahead in our reasoning. Knowing that Jesus will heal him. He was blind. And we think, well, he was blind, so the wonderful works of Jesus could be seen in him. In a way, that's true. You can say that. But folks, it is so much deeper than that. And this is what you need to hear. Jesus did not show up in this man's life until the man was an adult. All those years of blindness he was born blind he'd never saw his parents faces he couldn't see color he couldn't see the beauty of this earth all those years of dependency this had brought poverty he was a beggar all of this while he waited for Jesus to come and heal him no Jesus is not just referring the fact that he's going to heal this man. Jesus is saying this blindness has been given to him that he might show the works of God in his life even before Jesus came on the scene. Go back to Job. Job lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost his health. He had been wealthy, fabulously wealthy. He had a strong family. And he was a picture of health. And Satan goes before God and God said, Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And what what does Satan say to God? He said, God, you were the one who made him wealthy. You gave him his land. You gave him his home. You gave him all his livestock. You gave him his wealth. You gave him his family. You gave him his health. No wonder he speaks well of you. Satan says, God, let me take all that away and he'll curse you. So God allowed Satan to do that. And what was Job's response when his wealth and children were removed? He proved Satan to be wrong. Look at Job 1.20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and Worship. He didn't say fell on the ground and cursed God. He worshiped God. He loved God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. And the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job showed the work. That, you know what, God was, what he was doing? He was showing the work of God in his own life. In this dark and painful time, he was demonstrating his love of God, and it was to great consternation to Satan. Well, what happened when his health was removed? You know. That was Job's first response when his children were killed and the wealth was gone. Satan said, yeah, but he still has his health. And so God allowed Satan's 
or Job's health to fail. What was Job's response? In Job 2, 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive hard times? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, Job, look at this. Job did not know about Satan's conversation with God. He did not know what the purposes of God were. But he had determined ahead of time that he would be faithful. That's what what Jesus meant when he said that God's purpose was for the man to show forth God's work in his life with this blindness. The Bible teaches that is what faithfulness, faithfulness in dark places, it does. It shows forth the work of God in our lives. That's what that, the words from Habakkuk meant this morning. Did you know that those words we read from Habakkuk, and probably most of you were familiar with those words. Many of you probably know them by heart. But did you know that those words were sung as a hymn in ancient Israel? If you look in your Bible after those words, in Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, you read these words, to the choir master with stringed instruments. In other words, you sing this. You sing this. You make this a part of your worship. Look back now. Look on your scripture sheet or look in your bulletin. Habakkuk 3, 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olives fail, and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's feet. He makes me tread on my high places. Folks, go back to John 9. This man was not blind, so he could just sit and wait decades on Jesus to come and heal him. He was to be showing the work of God in his life, and he did. Later in this chapter, we will read that his parents were faithful members of the synagogue. So this man had been raised in the synagogue. He had been taught the scriptures. He himself was a faithful member. We'll read in verse 34 when we get to that place, that the Pharisees cast him out of the, of the synagogue because he would not denounce Jesus. So in all those years of blindness, he had been showing forth the work of God in his life. During those years, he did not denounce God and leave the synagogue. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath. He was going to be there. Folks, that's not, that's not easy. It's hard. Several years ago, I came across an article on a website of a well-known PCA church. The article was titled, Happy Clappy Christianity Cannot Deal with Prolonged Suffering. A husband in that article was writing of the severe pain with which his wife had suffered for 30 years. 
It was life-altering pain, daily pain. Medicine had not had an answer. The couple did not know the whys. Here's their testimony. Faithfulness to God and faithfulness to each other through the extreme hardship they were suffering. That was all that mattered. They have both concluded that they will probably never see the reason, not on this earth, they'll not see the reason for her suffering this side of glory. But they've remained lovers of God, faithful. They cling to Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. They cling to Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, not some things, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Her husband wrote in the last sentence of the article, speaking about understanding the reason and glory, quote, and our faith is that her suffering will not have been meaningless, but we will then see the currently invisible purpose and the fruit born by her faithfulness. Well, their testimony is already bearing much fruit and is honoring God. They don't have to wait till glory. The disciples, the most powerful people, the most powerful witness, one of the most powerful witnesses you could have is when you are in a time of intense suffering and the world sees you worship. The world sees you love God. The world sees your laughter even through the pain. The disciples proceed to make an assumption that is not accurate. Jesus' shocking answer for the reason for this man's malady. And thirdly, finally, Jesus gives this man an opportunity to express his faith. I love this. This is so beautiful. Having said these things, he's made this theological explanation. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus did what he had done over and over and over again as he encountered the blind and the deaf and the lame. He proceeded to heal this man. But he did it differently. Usually he just healed by fiat, by command. He said, see, and the person saw. But this time he spit on the ground. He made some clay. There were no healing qualities in that clay. There's no healing qualities in the dirt of Israel. The waters at the pool of Siloam would not heal him. Yet, Jesus told the man who had been blind since birth, I put clay on your eyes, go wash in the pool of Siloam.
Do you understand? Do you understand what it would take to do that? Hey, man, what are you doing? What's that clay doing? Oh, this man put him on my eyes, and he said, you know, I've been blind since birth. He said, if I go wash the mud off in the pool of Salome, I would see. Yeah, right. <laughs> You're an idiot. He could have said what so many do when Jesus tell them to come to the cross and confess their sins. He could have done what so many people do when they hear the gospel. I don't have time for a crucified Savior. Couldn't just walk off shaking his head at anything so absurd. But for some reason... He believed. He expressed his faith and he went right to the pool of Siloam. He was saying, Jesus, I trust you. I'm going to go wash. The evidence in this passage tells us that the man and his family were faithful members of the synagogue. In spite of his blindness, in spite of his poverty, in spite of the humiliation of being a charity case, he kept the faith. And now he followed directions of this strange man who put clay on his eyes. The question before the house this morning, the question of these first 12 verses is, in dark times, in painful times, in times of excruciating hardship, will you obey the Lord? Will you obey his word? You don't see any possible reason for your troubles. All you know is that it has come, this hard time has come to you in the providence of God. And all of us will get here. All of us. I don't know of a single individual, I've never experienced a single individual in my life that didn't come to this point. That's why it applies to all of us. Don't walk out of here today and say, well, I wish so-and-so had been here to hear that was suffering. As if it doesn't apply to us. We'll all come to this point. It is one thing when you suffer persecution from the world for your faith. When you're socially ostracized or made out to be a fool because of Jesus. But that is not the hardship described here. The man was not suffering because the world was persecuting his faith, at least not yet. This was suffering brought to him in the providence of God. He had no clue as to its reason, but he trusted God all those years. He did not commit suicide. He went, to, he went to work every day, this humiliating work of being a beggar, but he was faithful.
when Jesus told him to do something that seemed absurd, he did it. You know what? His life is still declaring the word and works of God in the world. It is this morning. He had no idea that he would be the subject of a message to God's people in Memphis, Tennessee, 2,000 years later. Think about that. Will people be talking about your faith 2,000 years from now? What you did in the dark time? So I ask you, do you really believe Romans 8.18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you believe in Romans 8.28? And we know that for those who love God, all things... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let me ask you, would you, be, would you rather be one of the wealthy Pharisees in this passage? Or would you rather be the blind beggar? Now, these Pharisees, they were wealthy. I mean, fantastically wealthy. They were held in high regard. They were leaders. Community looked up to them. The blind beggar. Here's the Pharisees. Here's the blind beggar. Who do you want to be? In all their wealth, all their power, all their prominence, all their religiousosity, they didn't glorify God or make his works known. And yet today, we're still talking about the blind beggar's faith and his encounter with Jesus. You know, when you get home, you can ask him yourself whether he had rather been a Pharisee. I think you already have the answer. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.